Hello everyone, my name is Katrina Wesencraft and today I'm interviewing Dr. David DeMarais. David is a geochemist working at the NASA Ames Research Centre. Welcome David. Thank you so much for joining me. Could you introduce yourself and tell the listeners a little bit about what it is that you do? Okay, well I'm David DeMarais. I am a senior space scientist at NASA Ames Research Centre. Uh, I have been there since 1976, basically since the year Viking landed and was first involved with interpreting Viking results. But most of my career has involved what we call carbon isotope geochemistry. And that is to understand all of the roles that carbon plays on Earth and space and so forth. Really, my dissertation way back in the 1970s involved carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen in lunar samples. What carbon does on the moon, as you can imagine, is quite different from what carbon is engaged in on the Earth. But that work sort of led me to a long-term interest of doing research on carbon geochemistry in volcanic rocks, uh, in the biosphere, and, and in many other aspects that come together to what we call the carbon geochemical cycle. And that is all the pathways that carbon follows and reservoirs where you find it that engage really the biosphere and provide a means by which the biosphere interacts with the planet Earth itself. So this was sort of a natural prelude to being involved in astrobiology, which really is all about life in the context of its environments, with the extension, well, the usual is life in environments also beyond the Earth. And so this aspect of looking for evidence of life elsewhere by first looking for evidence of a an environment that could have supported life has turned out to be a very powerful approach for Mars exploration, most famously starting with Follow the Water back in the you know, 90s and, and early 2000s to all the things that you've heard about most recently. So over the years, my early research on microbial ecology and, and carbon isotope geochemistry was sort of a, a prelude to becoming involved with the Mars Exploration Rover mission and also Curiosity uh, mission and so forth and so on. And it's turned out to be a, th this whole approach of looking at geochemical cycles and, and life environment interactions has proven to be a very powerful approach to doing exploration beyond the earth. How did you get into science in the first place? Presumably you weren't always interested in carbon. <laughs> no, well, um, my father was a civil engineer and uh, my older brother, who was the only decent athlete in the family and I admired when I was growing up, uh, he went off to Purdue University to pursue a major in uh, chemical engineering. I had a very charismatic high school chemistry teacher and we all know how important certain key teachers can be in the, the lives of people. And uh, so he inspired, and I had an interest in chemistry anyway. In fact, I made some fireworks when I was a little kid, much to the chagrin of my parents when they found out. So all these things combined for me to, to go to Purdue University and major in chemistry. That's where I got interested in geology because uh, one way to get out of West Lafayette, Indiana, which had a big Eli Lilly plant that generated interesting vapors every evening, one way to get out of there is to go south to Southern Indiana and go cave exploring with the Purdue Outing Club. And actually that got me sufficiently interested in geology that I decided to take some elective courses in geology. One thing leading to another, I thought that geochemistry sounded like a nice meshing of my interests and background. And that's when I went to Indiana University and very luckily got to meet a professor, John Hayes, 
who does geochemistry, uh, was actually working with another professor who had just received the lunar samples in 1970 from the, uh, I guess he, he got Apollo 11 stuff, but was able to get the later ones as well. And just by sheer luck, I made the decision <laughs> to go work with them. And that got me into isotopes because Hayes big specialty was isotopes. And if this all sounds sort of like chance, that's the way it, <laughs> it's the way it <laughs> develops, right? You know, you, the combination of charismatic teachers, just where you happen to be, just what happens, what happens in the bigger picture when you happen to be at a place where people are involved with it. So that got me into, into geochemistry, isotope geochemistry. And, um, and because of working on lunar samples, of course, I got to meet other people who were working in lunar science. And ultimately that led to me being able to get my, the job I have, have had since 1976 at Ames Research Center. So there you have it, a long sort of trail of, of unexpected twists and turns, but nonetheless, I have no regrets. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Uh, you mentioned isotopes. For our listeners that don't have a chemistry background, could you tell me a little bit about how isotopes are interesting to space science? Yeah, well, most people think of isotopes as radioactive isotopes, of course. And as a consequence of that, you know, you can use, you can do age dating and all of that. But actually what I work on is called stable isotopes. So carbon has two stable isotopes, carbon-12, then also carbon-13. So the, the, the nucleus has just got one additional neutron in there. Now, what's interesting about that is that the two isotopes react at slightly different rates. And one of the things that really distinguishes life, of course, from chemistry that's not life, are its enzymes. Its enzymes can speed up reactions, can make certain interesting products that would be hard to make otherwise. And a lot of times these, little, these reactions favor one isotope over the other. And so in a way you can use the ratio of these isotopes as probes as to what processes were involved in making a given compound or material that you find. So we actually use isotopes as a way of probing the kinds of chemical reactions that it might be involved with us in, a, in creating the sample that you have. Uh, and uh, that's sort of a, a short attempt at trying to explain it. Uh, isotopes also, the, this ratio sometimes, if you're looking at two compounds, the differences in the ratios between two compounds can sometimes reflect the temperature at which the two compounds are interacting with each other in an equilibrium. And so famously, oxygen isotopes have been used in seashells in ocean water to tell you what the ancient temperatures might have been. And that's where they first documented the, the temperature changes that occurred during the ice ages, just by looking at the relationship between seawater and the seashell, you know, they're basically shelly fossils that fall to the bottom. And you, if you look at a whole pile of those that are thousands of years old, you can actually track what was going on at the ocean. So there's several applications. Now, I'll just stop there, but it's, it's just a way of getting an insight into the processes and the environmental conditions that might have obtained during the formation of a sample that you have. That's fascinating. So you mentioned samples from the moon and samples from Mars. What's it like working on such huge NASA missions? Like when people think of NASA, that's, that's the stuff that they're thinking about. Right. Yeah. The lunar stuff was interesting because, uh, the lab at Indiana first got those samples because of the idea that was there life on the moon, you know, and the geochemist who got those samples, he came out of the oil industry. He's very famous for doing hydrocarbon analyses and oil analysis and all that. 
And so he had a very state-of-the-art laboratory for seeing if there are hydrocarbons in the lunar samples. And of course, as we all know, <laughs> no, <laughs> actually there is one hydrocarbon. Well, there's a couple, there's ethane and methane, which was part of what I got involved in. It's a strange non-earth type chemistry that absolutely has nothing to do with life. But that's what was fascinating about it. It's hard to imagine what carbon is up to if you don't have life involved somehow. I mean, it's everywhere on the earth, but you step out of the earth and it's, it's really interesting and weird. But again, giving you an insight about what was going on there as apart from what goes on on the earth. Is that what you think the most important sort of take home or the most important thing we can learn from the Mars missions is that about how life evolved here or about carbon or? I guess I'll start off by saying that probably the one scientific riddle that's is the greatest of any and that we maybe never will solve is how life started on the earth. And I say that because what happened after life began on the earth to a large measure obliterated what actually happened at the origins you know life is just so good at taking over carbon it's just so good at replacing itself that it may have forever obscured uh how life began on the earth now the key qualifier here is that life could have begun elsewhere but it maybe didn't exactly follow the same path okay but you still ended up with a life and of course you know when you watch the uh, sci-fi mysteries and stuff, you think, well, yeah, there's all kinds of possibilities. Of course, again, those are just extensions of life on Earth, right? Our own imagination. But the point is a life could maybe start different ways, you know? I mean, carbon chemistry is pretty complicated and there's a lot of options. So I think that's the point. And one of the key things that we think of in astrobiology is that understanding what that earliest environment was that where life began is a really important constraint on understanding how life can begin and also maybe how life began on earth if you can really define what that early environment was put that together with the chemistry of carbon and something happened and had an outcome and and so i think in that sense doing these studies gives an insight on how life can begin so now you go to mars mars is a fascinating place because it's not as geologically active at the earth it's not as good at covering its tracks that it made three to four billion years ago, uh, just because it's just not had the plate tectonics and the extent of volcanism and everything that we've seen on the Earth. So the, the hope is that we can go to places on Mars and we know that there are rocks that are that old, four billion years old and probably older. Uh, it's still there. Those rocks don't exist on the Earth anymore. Earth's been too active. So that's the exciting thing is that maybe we do have a record on early Mars of uh, what those environments were. Now the key is that because Mars wound down after that, um, that they, they were preserved. And the second key is that and through the Mars missions, we now know that those early environments were habitable. Uh, we had liquid water going around. We had more volcanic activity. Mars and the Earth were much more similar back then Early Mars is more similar to early Earth than it was to any other planet in the solar system. So Mars is really our best bet to try to understand what's the first few hundred million years of a planet's environment, of a planet's history anyway. And oh, by the way, is there evidence of interesting chemistry that might give us insight about how, what's going on and what might, might have led to life. So in that sense, it's, uh, it's something up in the attic that uh, that geology has forgotten about for three and a half billion years and you go up there and you learn about your ancestors. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good way of putting it. What motivates you? 
The same thing that motivates us to watch English mysteries every Friday night. You know, everybody loves mysteries, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, once you start to get to know about a, a system or a thing, and what initially got me interested, of course, was caves. You know, how do they form? You know, why does this do this? Why does it do that? And in an effort to try to understand what's going on, you, you have this need to get more, make more observations. Nature is the biggest puzzle of all, as far as we're concerned. And, you know, and the other strange thing that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And so it's just a never ending puzzle. I mean, the mystery has to solve itself in an hour, right? Or an hour and a half on television. <laughs> but these mysteries just get deeper the further you look. And so, I don't know, it's just the human interest in that. And that, and that the point is, is that everybody ha has that motivation. And uh, another thing that I found fulfilling in more recent years is being involved in helping to teach a high school class is what we call hands-on immersive science, where unlike just listening to a lecture and doing rote little exercises, the students actually go out in a field area, they actually uh, make measurements there, they actually do lab experiments to test what, they're, what they saw out there and to try and understand what they saw. And so, and just to see how they light up, you know, I mean, it's just a, an intrinsic, I mean, you know, we used to be hunters and gatherers, right? But now we're just hunters and gatherers of information or, or other things that, uh, that we need. And uh, I think this is just a natural extension of human nature. So I don't claim sole uh, skills here in being able to do this. What I've probably done, unlike a lot of people, is just focus on one area to a great extent and get to where we're able to do the kinds of stuff I described. That sounds so cool. I wish I had had a class like that when I was at school. You've talked about having quite a long career at NASA and seeing these really big missions, but what would you say is your career highlight so far? Uh, well, something something of pretty substantial importance in terms of exploration and also you, you just can't deny it. Something that's a first time experience. And I think for me, of course, the uh, landing of the Spirit rover back in 2004 is, is a major highlight because if it, it could land successfully and if the things we had tried to do with that thing really did work on the surface of Mars, it would be just a whole new way to explore beyond the Earth, basically robotically, but in a ways that mimic a human, in a ways that is being there. When I was first giving talks about the results of that mission back you know, 2004 through 2008 or so. In fact, I just went through these slides because I'm giving a talk a few hours ago on this. I, I put my, these, you know, field boots out there. I put, I took a picture of boots, a hammer, a hand lens and glasses and, and all these things that you take with you in the field if you're a geologist as examples of the capabilities that we put into this rover. You know, we couldn't put a two-legged thing there that looks like a human, it didn't make sense given the technology and everything else. But we really wanted to embody the human field geologist in this rover. And now we're putting this thing down on the ground and it's actually gonna be able to go around like we would in the field and, and do that. So I think the excitement of that, the, the risk that was associated with it, you know, we just witnessed this right a few weeks ago with, uh, with the uh, Perseverance rover. You can just imagine what it was like back then. I mean, uh, we're using a technology that was not terribly well proven. And Mars is the hardest planet to land on in the solar system uh, if you want to survive it. <laughs> uh, because the atmosphere is, is too thin to slow you down and just thick enough to burn you up. Right. It's harder than the Earth. It's harder. And the easiest one is Titan. Well, landing on Titan is going to be 
it's very easy by comparison. All these things. So it worked, you know. I mean, we landed and we went off. So to me, that was a real highlight. Other highlights are, of course, just discoveries you make in your own research. You know, isotopic patterns that we saw in the early Earth record that indicated maybe when oxygen first began to increase. But, you know, there's, there's a bunch of people working on this and we all think we have a novel view. And so it's sort of a shared thing. Well, so was the landing of the rovers, you know. Shared team experience is doing something really important, I think, is the generic answer to your question. There's just so something fundamentally humanly motivating about that, that uh, you, you sort of forget until you get into that situation and see the emotional up high that you get from it. So you mentioned the Perseverance landing from a couple of weeks ago. Do you still get a kick out of watching the rovers land or is it like you've seen one now, you've seen them all? <laughs> well, first of all, let me just say, if you've seen one, you have not seen them all. We wanted to land a Jezero crater with Curiosity rover back in 2012, but we couldn't, it was too rocky. So this is another sort of thing about Mars exploration. You look at the planet, the surface of the Mars is equal to all the continent area on the Earth. So that's a lot of real estate. You know, it's it's about 30% of the, the surface area of the Earth, and then that's pretty much the Earth's continents. Uh, but we can't land in 80% of that, uh, either because it's too high elevation, we can't slow down fast enough, you, know, you won't have enough atmosphere to cushion our entry, or it's just too darn cold. You just can't operate more than a few months before the Martian winter hits you and end of mission. You put all that effort in there. And now that we know that these things last for years, you want to be able to survive the winters. So it really restricts you to a few places. And we're sort of getting to the point where we're finding places that are really cool to go to, but man, they're rocky, they're on slopes, they've got, you know, they're too high elevation. Anyway, there's all these problems. We really wanted to go to Jezero with Curiosity, but we couldn't. So we developed these two new technologies. I don't know if you're following this or not, but one's called Range Trigger, where, which the computer on that spacecraft is, is running everything. And it, it knows how far it is from where we want it to go. And when it thinks it's gotten to that right point, given where it is in the atmosphere, that's when it pops the, the parachute. So when you see that big transition from the hot glowing thing, slowing down and then the parachute pops, that's a very key point in the entry sequence. We did not have that capability before this one. Right. So that's called range trigger. It's where downrange or uprange do you trigger the parachute? The next one, which is in a way sort of cooler, is called terrain relative navigation. And this is the technology that allowed us now finally to land in Jezero. We really wanted to get close to this river delta. This You've probably seen this feature that's going out into the delta or out into the crater. That used to be a big lake the size of Lake Tahoe. But there's all these rocks all over the place. So what we did was with this incredible orbiter, took a picture of the landing site at great resolution, half meter resolution. In other words, a good enough resolution to see any rock that would be a hazard to the rover. And then we programmed that map into the computer that's on the spacecraft. And at some point as the camera's looking down and comparing what it's seeing to that map, it says, oh, I know where I am, I'm here. And that's too rocky. I want to go there. Uh, that's when the thing's on the rockets, the sky crane. It literally steers that over to the safe place and lands. We did not have that. We had it this time. And, and they have videos. You probably saw them, right? The video looking down from the uh, sky crane, looking up from the rover at the sky crane. So we had a lot more video this time all the way down, which is important for engineering. They, they use all this stuff. 
And by the way, I don't know if you noticed, when you look up at the parachute, it has this interesting color pattern. Did you hear about why that, what that color pattern's about? So I read about it, but maybe if our listeners haven't, you could tell me a bit about it. There's several rings of patterns and the outer ring and the next one and the next one in are all codes. They have colors patterns that are binary code for do great things. <laughs> and the reason they wanted to do that, well, it was a cool idea. I, <laughs> something like achieve, do great things, achieve great things or make something. But the reason they had that random pattern, it's not random, but it was obviously sort of unique was that it was very important to see how much, what the orientation of the parachute was relative to the, to the rest of the spacecraft. They, they wanted to see what the turbulence was doing to it and how it was, did it get twisted or whatever. They wanted to know that. So they put this, this code, binary code in there to just keep track of the orientation of the parachute. Anyway, so there's just all the stuff that we didn't have before. This thing, when it was coming into the upper atmosphere, it had 23 cameras on it, 23 cameras. So no, there no two landings are the same. And that's just because of the pace of technology. It's a, everyone just gets more spectacular than the previous. Honestly, I think the video from the sky crane is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and oh, it's I, just unbelievable. Yeah. And I'd read about the, the code in the parachute, but I thought that was just like a flex. I didn't know that that had a use as well. They were wanting to see the orientation. So yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. One of the weird ironies of this whole thing is that uh, you remember in 1996, we lost the Mars Polar Lander, and, but we didn't know why it failed. And of course, the UK one, also the Beagle, they did not know why it failed right. for the longest time. And so we resolved that we're going to have an orbiter in place to image this thing as it goes in and to maintain radio communication with it. So even if it fails, we'll know why and we'll actually get something out of the mission. Actually, but the irony of that is that if it turns out that that means that the entry has to happen in the afternoon, which is the most turbulent time of day for the atmosphere. So you're actually going in at a more dangerous time of day, but for the purpose of, of maintaining telemetry all the way down to the surface. And that, of course, motivated more technology development in, in having attitude control. A big kicker is swing. As soon as you deploy that parachute, if there's any crosswind, you're going to get into this uncontrollable swing. So now we control that swing. And that actually was technology that was introduced with the spirit and opportunity. Anyway, I'm going to go on forever here. You're going to have to <laughs> keep me moving down no, your checklist. <laughs> Hearing people get excited about science is what this is all about. Um, okay. Were you nervous watching then? Was there any point that you thought maybe it wasn't going to make it? Well, yeah, you, there's always points. And of course, you probably heard this, is that when you first hear that the so-called turn to entry maneuver has happened. This is when it, it kicks off the cruise stage and turns to hit that very crucial angle coming in. When you hear that news back, it's already landed, right? Because of the delay. Of course. We lost communication with Spirit when it went in. There were two times when we lost communication with it. One was when it was that burning up thing going in the upper atmosphere. You have this huge ionic field that surrounds the spacecraft and it just cuts off radio communication. And then the other time was when it hit the ground and started bouncing. The little dipole antenna obviously started turning around like this and we lost lock on it. And that was actually the scariest time. We knew we were gonna lose communication in the upper atmosphere because of the ion field around it, but we didn't. And we should have expected we were gonna, might lose it when it bounced, but there were minutes, several minutes of like, oh, oh, you know, okay, it hit the surface, but you know, that's not sufficient success. <laughs> we need to know that it, that it uh, hit it at a low enough speed. 
anyway, so that that was pretty tense. I actually have a picture. Of, those of us who are on the team are sitting in this, you know, one area at JPL, and 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 the people in the actual control room were up on the screen. They showed them, and just you know, everybody's just like, you know, guys that spent ten years of their life, like, oh my god, you know, and then boom, we get the telemetry. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> nice. Yeah, it's risky stuff. Could you tell me a bit about your other work, the stuff that you do in between Mars missions? I got very interested with a research group at UCLA led by J. William Shelf, who had what he called the Precambrian Paleobiology Research Group. And the idea is how can we sort of systematically review what's been known in the literature about the early record of life on the Earth? And of course, we're talking about microorganisms uh, all the way up to what, 600 and so million years ago. And so I got related interest to that is actually to go to areas even today, like in coastal environments, like in, in our case in Mexico, in, in Baja, California, where you have microbial mats. These are like biofilms, only they're made by cyanobacteria, which are photosynthetic bacteria, sort of blue-green algae. And they make these biofilms. And what's fascinating is that within a few millimeters, you have an ecosystem that's incredibly complicated. It's been around for billions of years. And every little element that you have within that little biofilm is essentially a miniature version of what you see in a rainforest. You have the canopies, that's the primary producing trees in the forest. You have the understory photosynthetic organisms. You have all the organisms that run around on the forest floor and everything that lives in the soils. That's all descendants of these little tiny microbial films that have basically set up this very similar structure, but on a, on a millimeter to micro scale. And that this is something that's been going on for billions of years. When you look at the geologic record, you see these things called stromatolites, which are like, it's, it just means in Greek layered rocks, but they're little layers of biofilms, sort of like tree rings that build up, only they make little miniature reefs. So you talk about the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Well, how about a stromatolite reef, which is basically the microbial equivalent the most common fossil of life on early Earth. By far, this is the most common and widely distributed evidence of, of early microbial communities. So wow. what were these guys up to? <laughs> what were these guys up to, you know? And, and the key point is a lot of early evolution probably happened within these communities. So you go to one of these places today where you have the cyanobacteria and all that, and you, that's probably one of the most best preserved records of early life because that's just straight descendancy from these communities that go back billions of years. Now, I'm not a molecular biologist. I'm not a person who really gets in there and does the RNA and the DNA and all of that. But we had a, ran a program for several years where these guys did come in, working with those of us who were just making measurements of the oxygen going in and the carbon dioxide and everything, to just sort of try to understand how this ecosystem works. And we we're very lucky because the timing of our work coincided with a lot of advances in how you would be able to do these, this type of work, especially with the DNA and the RNA and all of that. Who's there? What are they up to? What are the products that they leave behind that could become fossils? And that was a very exciting program. Uh, pursued it well, from 1984 up to about 2012 or so. And got a lot a number of papers on that. But I think it just gives a real insight into what the early biosphere was about because those were very important parts of the early biosphere and we're still just peeking into a big dark room in terms of the secrets that those things hold. I mean, when you think about it, animals probably evolved in that ecosystem. 
you know, you talk about uh, the Garden of Eden, right? You know, well, why is, why are they in the Garden of Eden? Well, that's where the food is. <laughs> you know, why would animals develop in these mats? Well, that's where the food was, right? And 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 the first evidence of animals are grazers that are going around in there making tracks and so forth. And so our whole the whole ancestry of animals and plant or animals anyway, and of course, you know, modern plants could really have origins there. And so I think these things are tremendous. You know. I talked about how Earth destroyed its earliest rocks, and we don't have that record anymore, but we may well have a record preserved in actual living communities if we can read their ancestry through their molecules, really get an insight into that. So for me, that was another very exciting parallel line of research alongside the geology and the other stuff. So I've had a hard time keeping track on uh, just sticking to one subject matter over these years. <laughs> But that, that's another major parallel, I think, that goes along with the, the geologic type stuff. Cool. Of course, then all this relates to program planning. I was involved with the Astrobiology Roadmap, which is sort of this guideline document that, that the Astrobiology Program at NASA uses to identify the key priorities, sort of goals and objectives of the program. Because as you can imagine, from everything, everything we've been talking about, we've been all over the place, right? Microbial ecology, geology, planetary science, atmospheric science. Astrobiology can't be all of that. I mean, there's a lot of other organizations and agencies that do it, but what is it about NASA and astrobiology that adds to that? And I think as you've already guessed from what I'm saying, the interdisciplinary aspect, compelling different disciplines to work together, yet with this focus on exploration and, and uh, you know potential for life beyond the earth, that roadmap was all about trying to put some focus into that, given all the kinds of science that people could be claiming to do, but have actually, frankly, been doing for years, whether there was astrobiology or not. So that's been a big challenge. How did you choose? Like, what subjects did you decide and did NASA decide to focus on? Like, what is most key to astrobiology? Well, I think most key is, is building, is, is maintaining this, is the interdisciplinary connection. Interdisciplinary science is really hard. Interdisciplinary science is, is described as one qualitatively different discipline working with another one, two disciplines that are really, from a historical point of view, distinct. But to getting them to work together, and here's the key, it's so tightly that you really depend on each other almost on a weekly basis for progress, okay? You, you can have the old model like in, in Arctic exploration or the old days of oceanography where you had a biologist, you had an oceanographer, you had a you know, person who does oceanography and you had an atmospheric person. They're all on the same ship, but they're doing their own thing pretty much. That's called multidisciplinary. But interdisciplinary is that what I'm as a, doing this week as a biologist depends on what you're doing as an oceanographer, doing ocean temperatures and, and, and currents and all that kind of stuff. I need your data every, every week, every day, because when I see this weird organism, you got to tell me what's different about the environment that may help me understand why this organism is this weird or, you know, it's different. And so I think maintaining a truly interdisciplinary dialogue and thrust is probably the most challenging thing. And again, it's this relation that I talked about earlier that, you know, you, you go look for evidence of life beyond the earth in environments that have had the best chance of supporting it. And it's not just the best chance of supporting life, but supporting it most robustly. Because obviously a, a rock that has a thousand fossils in it is a heck of a lot easier to find fossils in than a rock that has two or three. Both of these rocks came from environments that supported life, but don't you want to locate and go for the rock that had the most dense fossils in it? 
which is precisely the challenge that uh, Perseverance rover faces right now. Which few hundred grams of samples are you going to bring back from the tons of material you're going to have access to? How do you pick the better ones over the lesser ones? So the challenges there is how do you do it? And the secondly is how do you engage all those skills across disciplines to focus in on that to make sure you, you, you succeed to the extent that's possible. So I think maintaining the interdisciplinary focus to go after really hard things like selecting those samples. I mean, that's an example to me is of a, a major challenge. And, you know, that's what we try to optimize by this programmatic stuff. One of the things I've been asking everybody is how the pandemic has been affecting their work and what you're talking about there about interdisciplinary science. That must be really tough because I know it's affected everybody differently. What's your experience? With respect to the rovers, uh, surprisingly little effect because after we lived in Mars time for three months, which means our day was 24 hours, 37 minutes, which means I'm waking up 37 minutes later every day, which is fine because I'm a night person. <laughs> uh, that has been minimally impacted. There was a period of about two, three weeks when the people who were at JPL coming in, the engineers, you know, working hands-on, they had to transition to remote work. But it's been almost seamless for us because we've sort of had to go to remote anyway. Once we got off Mars time and went back home, we learned how to work remotely as a science team. And so that for us was normal. The only thing that changed was we don't have in-person meetings, but, you know, we certainly look forward to having those again. The next one, I guess, would be uh, well, for, I'll just go to the obvious one, lab, those of us who do lab science, I mean, I'm talking to you about these microbial communities. Yeah, I can't do isotopes remotely. I have there's big instruments sitting in my lab that have basically been maintained and nothing else for the last year. So that's a big hit. And in fact, we're just pressuring our management right now to try to get us on track to open up the labs at, at, the, at least at the same pace as Stanford University is doing because they're in the same area, same county. So that's been big time impacted. Now, the interesting twist on that is we're getting papers written. <laughs> and in fact, this reminds me, the U.S. Geological Survey had their field budget cut and they were complaining because that's so much of what geologists do, right? Field work. But that year, their publication productivity went way up because they were writing papers. <laughs> and so headquarters saying, wait, well, is this such a bad thing? Yeah, look at all the papers you guys published. Yeah, well, that's like pulling water from a well that doesn't have a recharge, you know some point you draw out all the water and it's gone. So that's been a big impact. Um, the human impact, I don't know, it's, it's somewhere in between. Uh, I think this meeting technology and the fact that we can see faces has really helped. Um, when we first, I was also involved with the NASA Astrobiology Institute and when we first opened up that, we were trying to do this kind of technology. Trouble is it was so crude at that time that somebody like yourself, as soon as you would move your face or say something, your whole face would turn into one pixel. <laughs> suddenly you turned into cube face, you know, and that was sort of disconcerting. So you just, you couldn't see the, uh, you know, the nonverbal communication going on so much, but now it's just spectacular. And so I think that has really mitigated the personal isolation. I don't know if I, maybe not a terribly profound observation, it's sort of obvious, but three sort of examples that range in the, in terms of impact on what we've been trying to do. It doesn't have to be profound. I'm just interested in how the different disciplines have been affected and like what you're saying with your lab, my lab's been shut down as well and it sucks. So yeah, <laughs> um, I mean, I wonder, you wonder about your equipment, you know, if some, 
just like your car, you need to drive your car every so often and uh, equipment, same thing there, you know. And, and if, if you do lab work, you know that once you get your instrument going and you're making measurements, boy, you just don't want to stop because you're on a roll with it. hundred percent. You hate to shut it down almost. Before I go, I usually ask everybody, is there anything that you wish I'd asked or anything that you'd like to share about your work or your life or advice? You know, in this year when so many people have had such a rough time, I, I really feel amazingly privileged, of course, to have been in a profession where I didn't have to come in a lot of contact with people and be at personal risk and, and all of that. I realize how fortunate I've been. But of course, you know, being in an area where knowledge is your product, you know, it just makes me realize that at least that that's appreciated enough that uh, we can get support to continue working despite these times. And that is the joy of having working for a space agency. I can't think of very many professions where if you go out in public and somebody finds out, and I do not try to tell people where I work <laughs> just for the same reason that once, if they know you work for NASA, you're in for a long conversation. It's so nice to have a job where when you tell people what you do, they have a very positive reaction. Being involved with something that really appeals to every human's emotion and sort of like I said at the beginning of the interview, the desire to explore, it's just been deeply rewarding. And uh, in times of budgetary challenges, it's nice to know because it has very broad bipartisan support in a country that does not have a lot of bipartisan support. I consider that to be a, another thing to be, for which I quite, feel quite fortunate. And fortunate for humanity too, because it's stuff like this, you know, even during the depths of the Cold War, we still had good relationships with Soviet scientists because it was space, you know, there was this team effort that spanned between the US and the Soviet Union during this Cold War that in a way really came in handy in the developments of the 90s. Uh, and, and so it just speaks to the importance of this kind of an international collaboration as a way of reminding us that we're all one species and that we're all in it together. <laughs> and in terms of space exploration, we, we really are. Yeah, it's so important to say, and I completely agree. I'm just so grateful to even be here and to get to speak to such amazing scientists and learn all about what NASA does. So I guess the only thing left to say is to thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. You know, and thank you for your interest in the product you create. And this is essential for this bond between what we do and, and the public who after all is paying for it and whose interest is essential.